Everyone claims to be opposed to elites. It's a prerequisite in contemporary politics in almost every single country, including in this country, where even those in government with a great deal of power claim they're opposed to elites. Now, it's important to say here at Navarro Media, we generally have a view of the elite. It's the billionaires, the CEOs, the corporate class, the 1%. And their interests are overwhelmingly reflected in the media and in politics, and also in how we access things like housing, food, and what work looks like. But not everybody agrees with that definition of the elite. One person who definitely does not is my guest today, Matthew Goodwin. He's a professor of politics at the University of Kent. In his new book, he talks about the rise of a new elite, distinctly different to the elites of decades past, which is both culturally and economically liberal, but also completely out of step with the rest of the country. Now, it's important to say that many people who follow Navarro Media, and some people who work here too, were unsure about us conducting this interview. They disagreed with it fundamentally because of the politics of Matthew Goodwin and some of his views. I disagreed with that, however, as did other colleagues as well here at Navarra, because given the state of the Conservative Party after 2024 and the fact that mainstream conservatism will probably have to reconfigure itself quite extensively over the next several years, we felt it was critically important to engage with these assertions of a new elite head on and to have a dialogue with him in order to better understand precisely what he's saying and have something to say in response. Now, I understand not everybody will agree with that, but my view and the view of other colleagues as well is that this kind of debate arms the left with better arguments going forward and helps them too. I hope you enjoy this interview. Matt, you had to eat your last book <laughs> live on television. You've just published a new one. Yeah. Given that, why should anybody take this new one particularly seriously? Well, just to add, I think the last book on Brexit was a really serious good book that's become one of the good one of the definitive books on the Brexit vote with Cambridge. Look, this book draws on 20 years of research that I've been undertaking on politics, public opinion, and it's basically interested in these three big revolts that have reshaped the country, the rise of Farage and populism, the vote for Brexit, and then the post-Brexit realignment with Boris Johnson in 2019. And what I'm trying to do is challenge some of the misleading narratives and beliefs that we have about what caused all of that, take a step back and, and paint a, a broader picture and a, and a longer term story. And that's what the book's about. So if, if people on the left of politics want to challenge their priors, want to challenge the way they see the world, then, then, then this book is for them. So there's new books about what you call a new elite. Can you sort of expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So what this book essentially is arguing is that we are living amid the rise of a new ruling class in the country that is comprised of elite university graduates from Oxbridge, Russell Group universities who tend to live in the cities or the university towns who have often come from families in the managerial professional class um, who tend to lean left on cultural issues such as immigration, um, gender, history, identity, have been drifting leftwards both culturally and politically over the last decade or so, and disproportionately dominate many of the institutions in society from the House of Commons to the BBC to um, other parts of media, creative industries, cultural institutions, the prevailing culture. Um, and this new elite, I'm arguing, 
isn't necessarily always determining policy, isn't always necessarily uh, in number 10 Downing Street, but they wield enormous cultural, social, and political power. And over the last half century, I think this group has not only expanded, but has actually consolidated uh, its power in a number of key ways. And we can talk about how they've done that, but they've become one of the most powerful groups in the country. So the axis of power in Britain, I'm arguing, is now tilting away from the old elite, um, you know, which really was about um, wealth, uh, income, inherited titles, estates, which often actually leaned right on cultural questions or often reflected the values of the country, is now tilting towards this new elite, which is is different in many in many respects from that older elite. We'll return to that point. I just want to quote from your book here. Mm. The new elite is composed of Britain's doctors, architects, newspaper editors, journalists, politicians, civil servants, and academics. Basically, we just said there. Why aren't hedge fund managers in the list or, or landlords or billionaires? Why aren't they in the elite? Well, they are in an elite, but they're not in what I'm calling the new elite. So in the well, book- on, Just sorry, because a moment ago you said a new ruling class. Mm. So you're saying this new elite is a new ruling class, mm. but that ruling class doesn't include people like landlords, billionaires, CEOs. Well, it will include some landlords, some CEOs. We can come and talk about how the new elite are influencing business or influencing capitalism, and they are doing in a, in a huge way. Um, but I think there has been a misconception about this book. I think there are people out there who who think I'm saying there isn't an old elite or like this this elite doesn't exist. There isn't a kind of donor class in the Tory party. There aren't, you know, big financiers and hedge funds and, um, you know, uh, people in the Sunday Times rich list and whatever. Um, you know, those people still exist. I mean, that's in chapter two of the book. I talk about, you know, there is an old elite in the country. But what I'm arguing is that overall, over time, the, the 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 gravity, the axis of power in this country is shifting to this new elite graduate class, which is larger than the old elite. It's, t- it's typically about somewhere around 20, 25% of the country. It's actually exerting an enormous influence on that old elite now by reshaping not just politics and prevailing culture around its values and its voice, but also reshaping business and capitalism around many of its values, um, which which is one of the most interesting dynamics. Um, and, and I think also is determining who has a voice in the national conversation and who doesn't. Or to put it in another way, it's dominating the epistemic class in our society. It's deciding what's socially acceptable and what is not. It's deciding what's legitimate and what is not. And in many ways, I think the old elite is being forced or being um, uh, pushed to respond to this group. The whole thing about reshaping capitalism, I have to push back a against that because we are now in 2023 we've basically been in a downturn in, the, in this country for ordinary people their living standards for about 15 years particularly for people of working age uh the very poorest uh, are going up particularly those who work in work mm. poverty is now higher than people who don't work or are in poverty obviously since coronavirus since um the cost of living crisis over the last 12 months we've seen record profits for people like shell bp mm-hmm. major corporates and yet people are seeing their energy bills skyrocket. But what you're saying is that actually capitalism is being reshaped by a new elite with progressive values. I mean, the response to that would be, if only. Mm. I think um, what we're seeing at the moment is basically the emergence of a sort of loose alliance, if you like, between elites within business, um, uh, the epistemic class research, and also um you know the sort of cult, what you might call the cultural creative class, and we're seeing a fusion um, of elite groups who are together really exerting an enormous amount 
of power. I'll give you some examples. I mean, if you if you look at, say, the direction, particularly since 2015, 2016, of corporate responsibility or what's often called woke capitalism, which, you know, I appreciate many people watching this show might not like the word woke, but let's just, you know, let's call it woke I capitalism I think most of our viewers have a critique of, okay. yeah, this stuff, okay. corporate social responsibility. Well, if you, if you look at what business, how business has responded over the last few years, um, largely in response, I think, to the rise of some of these values, it's not only... Um, raised a whole host of implications for capitalism and how corporations compete, but it's also raised fundamental implications for democracy. Increasingly, corporations are intervening in the social, public, political realm, chasing a set of values that are being espoused and promoted by the new elite. And there's a sort of loose alliance between the two. And I'm certainly not the first person to make this argument. I mean, Michael Lind's New Class War, um, uh, to some extent, David Brooks, uh, Rise of the Bobos, and go back much further, James Burnham. Bohemian Bourgeois, just yeah, so people... Bo 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 Bohemian Bourgeois. Uh, 1941, James Burnham, who, who argued, which is really the roots of my argument, is essentially that the old school bourgeoisie capitalist system was not being replaced by socialism. What he argued was it was being replaced by a new professional managerial class that was increasingly influencing um, and and reshaping the world around it. And I think what we can see today in terms of you know this very hypocri um, hypocritical brand of, of woke capitalism, the way in which companies are now enforcing values on their employees, on their workers, um, often doing so while undermining rights for workers, in essence, is also a reflection of the power of this new elite, that they control the prevailing culture, they control the national conversation, they control, um, as I say, the sort of um, the parameters of what we're able to discuss and but what has, we're not able to How's it reshaping discuss. capitalism? Because we're seeing income inequality spiral, mm. we're seeing productivity gains go almost entirely to the 1%, mm. we're seeing asset owners benefit basically to the detriment of everybody yeah, else. including many people within the new elite. I mean, if you look at how... So, so, so you're saying it's... Re so I agree with you on the corporate social responsibility stuff. I would just say, yeah, that's whitewashing while they get on with the serious business of exploiting people and making really serious money. I don't think there's a new elite with progressive values seriously reshaping capitalism. I think they're changing little bits around the edifice for sure, the marketing side of things. But do you seriously mm. think they're reshaping capitalism? Because look, we've got... World's wealthiest man, Elon Musk. We've got Jeff Bezos. These people are so extraordinarily rich. When I was a kid, no, no I'm not. I'm, I, but you see, I don't dispute any of that, right? But, but you still reshaping capitalism. You know, what I'm saying is a transition from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism to this belief that the purpose of corporations now is not just to pursue profit, is not just to return value to their shareholders, but is to um, deliver value for consumers, workers, communities, countries, societies. That. Well, I'm not disputing- The ruling class don't believe I'm that. Not, some of them do, but I'm not disputing the fact <clears throat> it's hypocritical. I'm not disputing the fact it's a smokescreen. Mm. But what I'm still saying is despite all of that, we have large multinational corporations intervening in democracy, in the public realm to an extent they would never have done in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. That in essence is partly a reflection of the values of the new elite. That group as well, by the way, the reason I'm pointing to them, and I'm not denying that you know, inequality is, is still an issue and living standards are collapsing, but that group, just think about how they've consolidated power over the last half century. What, what group? The new elite. They've well, hold on. No, because we're going to come because I knew it is a very capacious term. Mm. So when you say the new elite, that's what I'm saying to you. So what consolidated power? You said, for instance, architects 
academics, they've not consolidated power in the last 50 years. Academics, ha- academics have, got in, have seen their wages in terms of what they can buy in terms of goods and services collapse in the last 10 years. Academics wield considerable amounts of cultural and social power. They're part of the epistemic class. They're gatekeepers to knowledge. But we're they talking decide- about capital capital, not no. social capital, capital capital. Because you were talking about money. I'm also talking, well, if you want to talk about the way in which the new elite have consolidated their power, many of the groups that I point to, academics being one of them, particularly at elite institutions, um, senior professionals, managers, people in the creative industries and elsewhere, have often moved to the big cities or been born and raised in the big cities. University towns have benefited from the growth of uh, more buoyant housing markets, have often seen um, or, or, or been in areas that have experienced higher rates of economic growth, um, have often also, when it comes to the economy, relegated their support for redistribution behind their cultural liberalism. They've not pursued an agenda of economic reform as strongly as maybe they might proclaim to do. And they've also consolidated their power, by the way, by becoming the main beneficiaries of university meritocracy. And it's often been their children who have been the big beneficiaries of the expansion of universities. It's often the kids of the new elite uh, who have benefited the most from the expansion of the elite, the elite universities. And it's working class kids, kids from outside the big cities and university towns who have been screwed over over the last half century. So I don't I, I don't view it as either or. Of course, there is a, you know, an, a capitalist old elite that has been accumulating power and influence. But what I am arguing in this book is that increasingly, actually, power in society, not narrowly defined just as economic power, but social, cultural, political power is tilting away to this group. And that power is reflected in the way in which many of these corporations and others are trying to pander to the new elite to say, actually, um, you know, we're with you. And that might be disingenuous. I'm not disputing that. But it's a reflection of the power of the new elite that we're even talking about these notions of woke capitalism, that we're even talking about these notions of uh, corporate (laughs) activism in a way that we didn't do previously. I mean, BlackRock and others wouldn't be falling over themselves to pander to the values of the new elite if they weren't a powerful group. But that's inevitable because all the things you're referring to are, are publicly displayed, whereas the people who just want to make money don't want to talk about values, don't want to talk about ethics. They just get on with it. No, they look have at, to now. Look at hedge funds, for instance, when they short Carillion, mm. right? And they're making hundreds of millions of pounds on, on, on actually the taxpayer losing out. Or look at, for instance, shareholders being paid dividends from uh, privately owned rail companies who, when they lose money because of strike action, are indemnified by the taxpayer, the shareholder still taking the money, or the CEOs of privately owned water companies, who I think should be punished for breaking the law, but instead get bigger payouts mm. and bonuses than ever before. Those are the people who I would say are in the ruling class, mm. and they're getting away with it, and instead we're having a conversation around cultural and social issues, and they've never been more happy. So I, I think probably a major point of disagreement here is, I think there's an elite, you think there's an elite, but I think that the people that really control society want to emphasize the culture and social stuff because it lets them off the hook. Well, so I'm, I'm writing a report on white capitalism at the moment, and I do think there's a false binary that we set up. People on the left say it's disingenuous, it's all a ploy to hide from capitalism and self-interest. People on the right say it's all about spreading radical progressive values, right? But actually, there is a view where they meet in the middle. I mean, if you read people like Carl Rhodes, or who's a you know, coming up from a left perspective, he argues that now essentially what's problematic with this new white capitalist world that we're in is that it's fundamentally undermining our ability as self-governing, independent, democratic nation states to make decisions 
for ourselves, that corporations are not actually just doing this in a disingenuous, hypocritical fashion. They are undermining democratic power. They are undermining the boundaries of the democratic state by assuming responsibilities and functions that ordinarily the state should be performing. And you did, know, the East, didn't the East India Company do that? Well, to or the, some, or the it, Virginia it, Company. It, I mean, the Virginia Company exists before the United States of America. The idea that private corporations have taken away and undermined the powers of previously all-powerful states. I mean, actually, that was the status quo ante. We had powerful corporations, multinationals, before we had powerful states. One might argue we had corporate social responsibility, uh, or at least an agenda of corporate social responsibility, but it never veered as blatantly as it is doing today into what a highly contested areas of our national life in terms of how we teach children, in terms of identity, so give, give, give in terms me, give of me an example. history, in yeah, terms of this is very uh, ambiguous for all, viewers. All, all of these kinds of things. Well, I mean, in terms of Nike or Ben and Jerry's opposing policies that are decided by democratically elected governments, that's an example. Well, give me an example. I well, I don't want Ben and Jerry's being in the public realm opposing a, a government policy, whatever it is, say on migration or- Well, what policy? Um, because I, I know they do this, but I'm not, about fun. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. Well, okay, about- uh, on Nat West. I don't want Nat West parading on Twitter telling citizens that they can't access banking services because they don't share the socially progressive values that Nat West are promoting. I don't think it's the role of corporations- Why can't they do it? It's a, pri- it's a private enterprise in a free market economy. We, you know, what, what, In the United States, that would be covered under- freedom of speech, the constitutional right. Why can't they? I personally don't think corporations should be intervening in democratic life. That is the road to plutocracy. And as somebody on the left, I would have thought that you would agree with me on that. I find this tasteful, but I wonder- The large-scale corporations now through this agenda are not only accumulating economic power, and I agree with many of the things you say, they're also accumulating political power, social power, cultural power. When I look at Nike, I don't just see a multinational that's spreading its wings around the world and exploiting workers <laughs> in you know, sweatshops. I also see a company that's now becoming an arbiter as to what is acceptable and what is not in our cultural conversation. That's not the role of a corporation. That's not the right. We should not have large scale multinationals doing that. I don't want Sainsbury's being on Twitter telling me what I should or should not believe. I certainly don't want corporations asking me to declare my allegiance to political belief systems. I just don't be. Is that new though? So, for instance, if you look at the rise of Nike, Nike in the 1980s goes hand in hand with the rise of Michael Jordan as this outstanding basketball player in the United States. Now, there was, of course, an undertone there of, wow, well, the highest paid sports person in the United States is a man of color, working class man. That was a powerful political message at the time. And I think quite intentionally so. This is different. This is new. So's Nike. We're a brand of a new generation. You could say the same thing with Pepsi and, and Michael Jackson. I think you could have had the exact same response to those brands. And I'm not saying, by the way, as somebody on the left, I think that's great. They did it. I'm just saying they did it. You could have had the exact same response to those corporations then. That was 40 years ago. I'll give you an example. Let's take Michael Jordan. When Michael Jordan was asked about why um, he was comfortable uh, to be selling trainers to both Democrats and Republicans, he famously said, Republicans buy sneakers too. I don't think that would happen today. I think corporates have become so openly partisan and political on these issues that actually it is one-sided, that corporates are leaning into a value system that is not shared by a lot of people. And this is what the book's about, that among millions of people out there, when they look at the, not just capitalism or the way in which it's being reshaped around these obviously political and cultural goals, but when they look at the BBC, the institutions, the creative industries, the political parties, when they look at the universities, when they look at how their kids are being taught about highly contested concepts and issues from 
um, white privilege to gender identity theory, they see a particular set of values that are being imposed on them, often by the state or by corporations, which they do not share and they do not support. That, to me, is a problem which is why I'm talking about so it. So how, how would you legislate for that? So, so for instance, I find, it, I find it equally distasteful that corporations get involved in the, in the wider political conversation, but I think that's a necessary, inevitable outgrowth of, of PR and marketing. I, I think, and, of, and that's all this is, by the way. Um, so how would you legislate? For, for you criminalise it? What would you do? Well, there's lots of things you could do. You could look, for example, at the extent to which corporates are breaking existing legislation, whether that's equalities legislation or other laws that we have to ensure that certain groups can't be discriminated against. I've been given loads of information over the last few weeks, to give you examples, cool. of uh, corporates who have been blatantly breaking equalities legislation in how they advertise for particular jobs and how they say, actually, we don't want... Advertising for jobs is different. That is different. I'm talking about PR. Or representation. Or, or uh, you know, facing the public, because you're hiring a very small subsection of the public. We're talking about mass messaging to millions of people. Hmm. So how, have they broken equalities legislation in terms of advertising and marketing? I'd want to see a much wider range of voices in the national conversation. So when people look, for example, at the adverts on television or the way in which their society is portrayed, whether it be on Netflix documentaries, whether it be on BBC debates, <coughs> that people who do not belong to the new elite, working class, voters, non-graduates, people from outside of London and the big cities see and hear people like them represented in the debate. Because if you're in Boston and Skegness or Clacton or Salford, <laughs> where my family's from, and you look at the adverts on TV or you look at the you listen to the BBC debates, you would probably think you're living in some other world, that this is another galaxy. This does, certainly doesn't represent people like you. You know, I mean, Radio 4 today is a great example of that. Every morning, you know, you have to listen to it, partly because of the political agenda. It speaks to max 20% of the country in terms of the values that it represents. Four. That's Radio 4. But I can go across the gambit. I, my argument is our national conversation is not giving adequate voice to a wide range of groups in society. And when it does speak about those groups, it often stigmatizes them as racist bigots, ca gammons and Karens, etc., etc. And that's partly why Aaron and I agreed, you know, and I'm happy to do this interview because what we need is a different media ecosystem. But you said there that People are confronted with a media which doesn't look like them. The two biggest selling newspapers in the country are both very conservative, the Daily Mail and the Sun. 90% of journalists in this country are part of the graduate class and half of them have gone to Oxbridge. The vast majority of journalists lean, well, actually, I should clarify that, a majority of journalists mm. lean to the left politically. The Reuters Institute at Oxford has shown that. Local media has been gutted regional media has been gutted. You know, as well as I do, you cannot make it in Britain's national media on the starting salaries that they have unless you already live in London or mum and dad are supporting you. So if I've got a kid coming into my university saying they want to become a political journalist, they're from a working class family in Kent, their chances of making it in the, in the national media are minimal, right? It's not like it used to be. So the working class non-grad fairly ordinary voices that might otherwise be in the national conversation aren't there, which is why the media class was knocked on its head by Brexit, by the rise of populism. It didn't see it coming. It never really leaves London. And most days it sits on Twitter and assumes that Twitter is a kind of, you know, symbol of the national community. And I just think that's why we've got so many people looking at our national conversation and thinking this is bananas. And it's also, by the way, why so many new elite journalists were so hostile to my book when it came out because 
they know what I'm pointing to is true. And I think, you know, it holds a mirror up at the media. Let's stick on that study because it's really interesting. Um, you mentioned about journalists. Oxford Reuters study, which found that 53%, so you're right to the majority, of British journalists put themselves on the left, while only 23% were on um, the right. I think the rest are in the centre. But regardless, like I say, a majority are on the left. So name me 10 high-profile left-wing British journalists. Well, the other thing, just before I do that, if you go um, look at rank-and-file journalists, yep. it's it's higher. Yep. Uh, I think it's 50, 56, 57%. Um, I would, I would argue. You're in this game. No, go on. Because so, and I'm not trying to. Well, I'm, this is not a gotcha. Because I know you're going to be able to name ten no, people. No, but no, I want, it, to, I want to debate about I'm what you mean give by left wing. I'm, yeah. I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you examples. Yeah. Okay. When I when I think about the left liberal left skew of many of our journalists and our companies and our organisations, I'm thinking about prominent figures who cling to what we might call socially and economically liberal values Agreed. that are maybe held by 20% Agreed. of the population max, which Agreed. if you look at the latest Br British Social Attitude Survey suggests that about 20% of Britain are consistently sort of strongly liberal in the way that these politicians are. So if you look, for example, at, you know, the reason I'm hesitating about names is not because I can't name it, but I don't really want to make this a personal discussion that will then sort of bleed you've into. Been, you've been personal. Come on, Matthew. You've been personal on Twitter. You've been talking. And you were in the Sun. You were talking about specific Nepo, individuals. Nepo journo babies who lean, you know, liberal left. Uh, you know, Hugo Rifkin, Henry Mans, Emily Maitland. Hey, Hugo Rifkin's not on the left. Mm, liberal left. He's a liberal. Exactly. He's he's a liberal. Leans, Emily Maitland is not on the left. Leans. No, well, your left, not as in, you know, left left. But, well, yeah, okay. So, how, okay. so I'm talking about. So how is Hugo Rifkin left wing? I'm saying culturally liberal. He's social, absolutely. Culturally yeah. liberal and pretty centrist on pretty centre left centrist on the economy is what I would say. I, I think if you said to Emily Maitlis tomorrow, and I don't know, maybe she, maybe she is. I don't know the woman, but I can only glean from what sort of her public appearances. Emily, should we bring rail, mail, water into public ownership? Which, by the way, a majority of conservative voters think we should bring most of these things into public ownership. She would say no. I, I, I've made so, the same argument when Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party. So, 75, 80% of people will support those policies. The point I'm making is key. This is really important. Okay, let me just, the elite graduate class, the liberal left journalists over the last 10 the left, years... That's the right of the public when it comes to economic issues. On cultural issues have skewed very strongly left over the last decade. Right, and that's why and they've know. lost touch with much of the rest and you've of said the country. That. And I think I think it's that's an interesting point, but that that is at odds with what this study says, which is the fifty three percent of British journalists put themselves on the left. I would say I'm sure they think they're mm. on the left, but I, if you ask Emily Maitlis, Hugo Rifkin about a bunch of policy prescriptions, mm. actually, they're that's the right of the British public. Yeah, I don't think we're and actually that, disagreeing. And that something. No, I know we're not disagreeing, no. but it's, you cited a study which I think actually conflicts with things you say elsewhere and i think that's really i think that's really really important because actually the conclusion there is to me is that the british media are actually on economic issues to the right of the british public even the journalists who think they're left wing they're they're, they're the, the new elite as i would describe them are basically culturally liberal and economically you know center-ish left and centrist but, well, I wouldn't say they're just liberals. I would say they're the new elite, which is um, how I describe them in the book. Um, they're certainly not culturally left and economically left. And the problem that we have in the House of Commons beyond the media is that most MPs in the House of Commons now lean much further to the cultural left and much further to the cultural, uh, much further to the economic right 
than many voters out there in the country, whereas Labour MPs today lean much further to the economic left and much further to the cultural left than most voters out there, which partly explains what happened in 2019. Is that true? You think that most Labour MPs are to the left of the public on economic issues? On economics, yeah. Also, if you look at, the, for instance, the polling on policies, which I said a moment ago, so for instance, uh, water, rail, mm. mail, even most Tory vote, for instance, Royal Mail. And I'm not surprised. This is a, 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 a firm which is mm. 500 years old, huge heritage. You have the crown on the thing, for goodness sake. Yeah. Of course, conservatives are going to really think it's important. A majority of conservative votes in 2019 think the Royal Mail should be in public ownership. Mm -hmm. I do not think that a majority of Labour MPs think the Royal Mail should be in public ownership. So the, I certainly don't mm, think the Shadow Cabinet thinks that. Sure. So it depends how you're defining economically left-wing. So if you look at the survey of MPs by um, uh, Alan Wager and Tim Bale, they would define it as su support for economic redistribution, right? Go much further on redistribution. They don't. I don't think they actually include nationalization as one of the items. So if you are saying economically left-wing is strong support for re redistribution and culturally left-wing is strong support for, say, immigration or um, you know social liberalism, uh, then certainly most Labour MPs lean much further to the economic left and much further to the cultural left. But they might not support some of the policies that, say, you know, Jeremy Corbyn did. Uh, well, most as, conservative as, voters. As, as, as we saw. But there is, as I argue in the book, what we still have is the fact that the average voter leans further to the cultural right, further to the economic left, than most of the people that are claiming to represent them in politics, media, culture, and beyond. I, I, think, I think there's a great deal of truth to that, but I do think it conflicts with the point you make about journalists and that Reuters study. Um, this is an interesting point for me, because obviously you talk about the rise of a new elite, and we've had Peter Hitchens on before. Right. And the interesting sort of difference between him and you is, I mean, he thinks there was clearly a new elite, you know, the whole abolition of Britain thing. Yeah. And he, he takes over Blairism in a similar way yeah. to you, but he also clearly thinks it's continuous with earlier changes yeah. sort of in, in social liberalism. Yeah. You don't think that, or well, I, I don't think you do. So can you date when the new elite starts? Yeah, just on that point about um, uh, Peter Hitchens. Um there's another difference between my account and the abolition of Britain, which is I have a whole, more or less, nearly a whole chapter on the problems that came with Thatcherism and the economic turmoil and legacy of Thatcherism, um, which I don't think um, Peter really talked that much about in that original book. He also, by the way, didn't deliberately, I would add, uh, he didn't talk about immigration. He avoided that completely. But when he argued that there was a new professional class that was now imposing its radical cultural liberalism on the rest of the country, then yeah, absolutely, we're in the same camp on that. And I think really the roots of that, depending how far you want to go back, I mean, there's an argument that will say the cultural radical liberalism of today's progressives um, can be traced back to you know 1910s, 1920s, um, the sort of Greenwich School, Greenwich Village, the rise of Bohemians, and so on. Some trace it back even further. I was at a conference recently where somebody, a historian, was tracing the roots of radical progressivism to the um, 15th century. I mean, it, you know, Tom Holland would go back even further. Mm. Um, in my mind, though, I think when I when I'm talking about the new elite, the new graduate class that leans left on cultural questions, they are the children, usually, of people that were primarily impacted by the cultural re revolution in the 60s and beyond, and mainly by the expansion of the universities, which really took off after major 92. Obviously, some of those people will have gone to university before then. In the 1960s, the ratio of left to right academics was three to one 
Today, it's closer to 10 to 1. Mm. So they've come through a very specific cultural, educational environment. Um, and so the new elite, I think, in my mind, has been coming for about half a century. The difference today is they are now emerging as a very significant big block in society, I estimate, to represent about 25% of the country. Mm, just quickly on that, because it's unclear to me, because at one point you say 1979, which I think is perfectly coherent. Then at another point, you cite George Orwell and on intellectuals famously, you know, they get their ideas from the Soviet Union and they get their eating habits from France. <laughs> yeah. And then you say, after a decade of political turbulence and turmoil, Britain in the 2020s is in the grip of a new ruling class, mm. the middle class graduate elite. So, I mean, there's a lot of flexibility there, Matthew, because you're saying at 1.79, 1940s, but I think you've answered it. But when, so when, well, no, when was, there's no there's no definitive starting point to any movement. There are always roots. Sure, there are always intellectual ideological roots. And if you look at, for example, what when Orwell was writing, I mean, at that point, five percent of the country went to university. It's a completely different era. Today, it's closer to 40 percent. Britain in the 2020s is in the grip of a new ruling class, the mm. middle class graduate elite. Mm. I mean, you say in this book and actually previous work as well. How, I mean, look at the Brexit vote. The Brexit mm. vote was a rebellion against this new elite. So how? Is Britain in the grip of a new ruling class in the 2020s, yet we left the European Union in 2016 and this new ruling class took this decisive blow? I mean, they can't, both of those statements if can't you, be true, if, can they? If, if you want to explain how we've ended up in the place that we are today, what I argue is that essentially Britain has been subjected to a political and cultural revolution that began in 1979 with Margaret Thatcher and a radical economic liberalism and continued with Blair in the form of a radical cultural liberalism. Now, I get they're very different politicians, very different um, convictions, but basically at the end of that, by the time you get to the early 2010s, Britain's politics, institutions, and prevailing culture has been wrapped around a narrow consensus of economic and cultural liberalism. And that worked really well for the new elite, but it alienated millions of other people. So by the time you get to Farage, Brexit, Boris Johnson, I would include Corbyn actually partly in this in terms of a, a symptom of the disillusionment mm. with this consensus. Uh, by the time you get to the 2010s, it's clear that a, you know, a very large section of the country is no longer really wanting to go along with this oh. new, new, new consensus. But here you say in the 2020s, it's in the grip of a new world. Yeah, we left, whereas you're we, saying in the 2010s, well, look, at, look at what's happened since Brexit. I mean, that in itself is what I'm, what I'm arguing. We've left the European Union only just, by the way. I mean, the new elite did everything they could to stop it. They almost, almost did. Well, they lost, yes, but take some of the issues that voters really care about that I talk about in the book. Take immigration as one of the issues, right? Nothing's happened. It's just we've just had more really? immigration. Yeah, we've stopped EU nationals, but immigration has gone to five hundred and four thousand. Take how we talk about Britishness. Take how we talk about you know the sort of embrace of international universal themes of who we are versus uh, you know what many voters would want to see is a celebration of what is it that makes us distinctive, our let's history and our identity and our culture. Let's, let's, let's talk about the right let's talk about the expansion of gender identity. We'll, we'll uh, do all that. Theory or, uh, we'll do all that, but I'm worried, obviously, we've got a long interview. Yeah, but this is gonna... what I mean. But but, but we'll when people say, well, we left the European Union, therefore the new elite lost. No, we didn't. Not at all. Let's the just Brexit think... was the only part of that revolution, right? I say that revolution was defined by mass immigration, was defined by EU membership, was defined by hyper-globalization, a destabilizing economic model, and was defined by the hollowing out of our national democracy. 
And I would argue today, really, only one of those things has basically changed, which is we've left the European Union. Everything else that we've seen since Brexit, the acceleration of hyperglobalization, the acceleration of mass immigration, the continued dismissal of much of the country within our national democracy, I would argue actually reflects the entrenched power of that new elite. Let's just stick to immigration quickly, because you're absolutely right. On the numbers, I think you had half a million net immigration last year. That's partly obviously because of Ukraine sure. and Hong Kong and whatnot. But you're absolutely right. You know, David Cameron in 2010 saying we'll get it down to tens of thousands. And the Tories keep on going right, right, right on rhetoric, and yet the numbers go up. But surely you look at people like Suella Breverman, you you see people talking about, you know, detention centers, frankly, in, in places like Rwanda, or the obsession amongst the, the Tory party with small boats. And they feel they have That's to. That's not a Tory obsession. No, hold on, yeah. Eighty percent of the country yeah. think the borders are out of control. Hold on, they're doing that because they want to win the next general election. I'm not. I'm not disputing that or for a moment. Control the borders. No, but the people. No, but the people that care the most about that are the people that voted Tory in 2019. I'm absolutely under no illusions about that. They have to absolutely get on top of that if they want to form the next government. If they don't get on top of it, they're in big, big trouble. So I, I don't dispute that for a moment. But I don't see how you can say there's a new elite in charge of immigration in this country. When you look at the rhetoric around immigration and around what we should do with it, coming from politicians, and you can say they're responding to, to ordinary people, then that's precisely my point. That undermines the idea of this insulated new elite, surely. What's changed? Look at our economy. It's still wrapped around a London-centric model that's dependent on the influx of oh, cheap we're talking, we're talking migrant. No, I am. Yeah, yeah. An influx of cheap migrant labor that serves big business and also serves a new elite. Look at how the leveling up strategy post Brexit became nothing. There was no serious That's strategy. Boris Johnson's not a serious guy. Yeah, but I think people look at me and this book and think I'm trying to blame labor and the left and I'm trying to give the conservatives a free ride. That's not what I'm doing. The new elite is as prevalent in many ways on the right of politics as it is on the left. You say Brexit's changed everything. I say Brexit's changed very little at all. Sure, it might have upset a lot of liberal Remainers uh, on Twitter, but if you look at regional inequality, if you look at migration levels and the pace of change, if you look at the extent to which we're still wrapped around a hyper- globalized economy that is not really helping um, much of the country. Nothing's changed at all. So we'll be leaving... I, 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 do you think we'll leave the EHRC? I think it's going to be definitely up for consideration and debate. And I have a very different view on this, and I'm sure many of your viewers... Yeah, I, I, well, I just look at the trajectory of the Conservative Party, and I think it's obviously depending on whether or not they're in power after 2024. But if they're anywhere near power, it strikes me that they will want to get Britain well, out of the HRC. So the idea that Brexit has changed nothing, I mean, that's that's a whole new Pandora's box, which has been opened subsequent to leaving the European Union. I think, I think the roots of this entire crisis go back to New Labour. I think New Labour set the stage for Brexit. I think New Labour set the stage for Farage. I think Tony Blair was as much an architect of Boris Johnson as David Cameron ever was. I think the British people have been consistently misled and lied to about immigration and asylum for the last 20 years on both the left and the right. And I think what we are looking at globally over the next 20, 30, 40 years is so big and so enormous that nobody's even prepared to think about it. If you look at the Gallup survey, the most reliable survey in the world, 900 million people around the world would like to leave their current country. We've got 90 million displaced people around the world. That's a bit daft, isn't it? No, the UN. We've got that's 90 a, million people. That's a bit people. of a daft. I mean, what, Gallup survey what I'm, what in, I'm in saying, some, somewhere with a GDP no, no, of $1,000 no, 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 per no, head? Would no, you like no, to what, go and live in London? Oh, yeah, of course. What, I'm, what I'm saying is we are on the cusp of a major global 
migration crisis linked to climate and other things that is going to make our current debate seem minuscule. By comparison, 50 years from now, we are going to see things that I think today we would struggle to comprehend. Not, hold on, I think and that's what we're plausible, doing, but what we're doing at the same time... 900 million is a bit of a... No, I'm saying 900 million people say they would yeah. like to move well, their the countries UN if they could. Looking at 100 million plus okay, but either way, what I'm sa- well, either way, what I'm saying is that's all happening while we're clinging to an institutional legal architecture that was designed in 19... 19- 49 or 1951, mm. which isn't suitable for dealing with these challenges. And that's what I'm saying. Will we leave the ECHR? I suspect in the end we will probably have to. Will we need a, a scheme like Rwanda, like some kind of third country um, processing center? I suspect at some point we and other European countries will have to do that. But hold on. So you're saying we've left the we've left the European Union. You're saying we will probably have to leave the ECHR, which many conservatives are now openly saying. But the views of the new elite, the, the, the sort of liberals that are generally in the media, wouldn't, wouldn't accord with that. So again, I'm saying to you, you just talked about changing phenomena over the next 30, 40 years and how politicians will have to adapt to that, one of which would be leaving the ECHR. Again, that's an argument against the new elite, surely. No, I the think, fact that conservatives are ahead no, of that, no, despite what the liberal class it, is saying. It, 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 such is the disillusionment and the growing scepticism of this group, which we saw through Corbyn, through Brexit through Boris Johnson, whatever, imperfect vehicles for many voters, such as their disillusionment with this group, that I think voters will end up continuing to rebel and push against them. And I think that's going to be reflected in issues around migration. I think it's going to be reflected on issues around how we teach kids issues. If you take the group within the new elite who I talk about, radical progressives, right? They represent about 15% of the country who we might call the woke or whatever your favorite term. 15% of the country, and that's not me, that's more in common think tank who says, you know, they are highly educated, wealthy, affluent, mum and dad are doing really well. They are very left on cultural questions. They're convinced Britain is institutionally racist. Um, They are consumed with historic injustices. They want to talk about Britain's empire. They want to, you know, take down statues. They're completely consumed with the idea that... um, uh, um, minority rights have not gone far enough. If you look at that group, hold on. You talk about a lot, you talk about a lot of things there. Yeah, but they're they're completely at odds with where the average voter is. Whole, like on those. So what I'm saying is there's no, a cluster on, of issues on immigration. Around on immigration, the British public, which is one of these great contradictions, and you talk about it in the book. Yeah. On immigration, actually, people have had more progressive attitudes on migration since we left the European have, Union. But they still want less of it. Yeah, but you're saying that we're going in one direction, which is to the right on immigration, because people are revolting against the new elite. But the data shows that actually people are becoming more progressive on immigration. Not progressive. They're becoming more... The attitudes More open have, to it. Attitudes have softened since the Brexit referendum. But there's a debate about why that is. I would put it to you that many of my colleagues would say, well, that's just because everyone's becoming more liberal. That's just a liberal drift that's happening in Western nations. I'd put another possibility to you, which we won't know for a few years, but we'll come back and revisit it, which is I don't think many people out there in the country have even understood what has happened around the immigration issue under Boris Johnson and the Conservatives. I don't think people even know how the country- Really? Yeah, I really do. I think think concern is is beginning to rise. But if I said to- I run focus groups all the time. If I said to people today that Boris Johnson, Conservative, one of the things he did was remove the requirement for British companies to advertise jobs for British workers first- I bet you most people would say, no, Boris didn't do that. Boris would never do that. I bet if I asked them, what's the salary threshold for high skill workers? It's 23,000 or or 20,000 in some sectors. I bet most voters would be like, how's that high skill? 
I bet if I told them that we issued 1.1 million visas last year, or we are now committed under the OBR forecast to sustain net migration levels of about a quarter of a million for the next 10 years while dealing with a housing crisis, while dealing with a public service crisis, while dealing with a climate energy crisis, I bet my, most voters would be like, but I thought we were lowering immigration. Wait, wait hold on. I bet. I, that, I bet it's not good enough because you know that immigration is still one of the most salient issues in the debate It's number right two now. for conservatives, and I suspect it will become more important over time. But I don't think people have understood. Well, they have understood because it's one of the most salient issues. They've under They've understood. We're talking about the small boats. We're talking about the issue that we can see on you know, the news and so on. But I don't think people have a grasp of just how profound the changes in the next 10 years are going to be. And I'm concerned, why well, I wrote the book, that on these issues where the new elite is saying, we want more. We want more immigration. We want a looser approach on the borders. We want looser- Who's saying that? Lots of people are oh, saying come that. Come on, Matthew. This is the same throughout the what, book. Take the Gary Lineker episode. Yeah. Take the Gary Lineker episode. Gary Lineker, who, by the way, Based is an on, hold on, who's an avatar of the new elite yet didn't go to university. Sure. Sure, absolutely. Well, there are there, there is a sort of a loose alliance with parts of the celebrity class, as you can see in Hollywood as well. I mean, it's not that's not I don't think that's a, a well, no, because you're th crazy because you, point. But no, if you took the Gary well, Lineker is, conversation, the, the fundamental thing with these people is that they prize university education. If you took the Gary Lineker debate where he came out and said what he said about 1930s and Swella Braverman, based on the national conversation that I observed, and I'm happy for people to disagree with me, you might be led to believe that about half the country think the same as Gary Lineker, that about you know half the country, if not more, strongly disagree with the government's policy. 16% do. It's it's a it's a minority issue. Who's talking about her language? On a lot of the radical no, so on a lot of the radical progressive issues that are championed by the new elite. Take the Scotland recognition, gender recognition bill. 20% support it. Hold on, we're jumping should around. We, should, no, 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 but this is an example how can, of how, can how disconnected. How can I respond to something if you jump to something? But this is an though. example of a key point, which is the new elite, especially the radical progressives within them, are utterly disconnected from much of the rest of the country. But you're jumping all over the place here, so I can't sort of pin you down on one thing. Sure. When, when we talk about immigration, mm. I think I think certainly most Tory voters from 2019 are fully aware that immigration is still relatively high, and it's still far higher than what was being promised by David Cameron in 2010. I think that goes to the heart of the problem for the Conservative Party, yeah. right? That they say immigration is still high, and you've not done anything about Agreed. it. Yeah. And at the same time, you've got more progressive values over time, although you've said that's not necessarily the case. No, so it, 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 I'm saying it's up for debate. It's up for debate. We'll see where we are in five, ten years. I think that uh, the the cause of that, I think, is is disputed. What I think has happened is Remainers have doubled down on their social liberalism in response to Brexit, like in the US. Lots of Democrats and progressives have moved sharply left on cultural issues. At the same time, I think Leavers probably expressed more support for immigration after Brexit because they felt that they were getting control. Yeah. But I think over That's the true. next five years, that will probably begin to change, actually. So on this idea that um, the new elite emerges from this confluence of economic liberalism with Thatcher and then social liberalism with Blair, you write, and I quote, historically, Labour had combined a strong left-wing stance in the economy with what would now be seen as a right-wing stance on culture. Mm. Now, in the 1960s, Labour legalised homosexuality, mm. divorce, abortion. Roy Jenkins, who was a very famous Labour mm. Home Secretary under Harold Wilson, uh, speaking in 1966 as Home Secretary, defined integration, and I quote, said, not as a flattening process of assimilation, but as equal opportunity accompanied by cultural diversity in an atmosphere of mutual tolerance. Mm. That's very similar rhetoric to New Labour, and it was during the Wilson years, important to say, Harold Wilson won four elections for Labour. So mm. this idea that social liberalism was alien to mm. Labour until mm. Blair, that's not accurate, is it? Not alien, but that strand and that view 
was also balanced out by a different tradition within the labour movement. And I point to the likes of Peter Shaw, Tony Benn, Clement Attlee, among others, who also gave expression to what we might call a social patriotism, a belief in the institutions of the country, a tendency to, you know, think about famously Attlee's partnership with Churchill being the most obvious example, a sense that actually there was something quite distinctive and unique about this place that we call home. And I think that Labour at certain points in their history articulated that eloquently and powerfully. And what worries me about the Labour movement today, like all left-wing parties today, is that that tradition has been crowded out, partly by the rise of the graduate class. If you look at the profile of Labour MPs today, there are almost no MPs really from what we might call non-graduate, working class, non-urban backgrounds. A number of trade union officials, and you'll know this better than me, but I think it's probably down to single digits. If you look at the last election, Labour candidates were more likely to have gone to Oxbridge than Conservative candidates. So I think the changing profile of the Labour movement over the last 20, 30 years, I actually think is a problem. And this is what I mean by voice in politics. You know, if you're working class and you haven't gone to Oxbridge or Russell Group or even any university and you're an apprentice or you've gone to a further education college or whatever and you're, you're outside of the big cities and university towns, you look at Westminster, there's no one like you. There's no one like you. And I think that's a problem. And there used to be. I mean, if you go back and you look at the studies of Labour MPs, that's why mm. Labour was so important, partly in the parliamentary system, because it provided a working class elite. And of course, some of those people went through top universities and whatever, but it provided a sense of balance. And I just don't think that balance is really there at the but moment. But this reads more like nostalgia to me in a way, because the, the, the people you refer to as the new elite, let's say many of the people that would have got behind Corbynism in, in 2015 to 2019, they would say, Matthew, I agree with everything you're saying. Mm-hmm. That's why we need mandatory selection. Mm. That's why we would like primaries or mm. proportional representation, mm. because we need to diversify the kinds mm. of people in politics. Mm. They would agree with you. Mm. Okay. But you're calling them the new elite, and you're saying at the same time they want to uphold this sort of Oxbridge dominance on the political class. No, I mean, those are the exact same. I know the left probably better than you. Sure, of course you do, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, those are the exact same criticisms they would make. And they would yeah. say, yes, there's a permanent political class, but the idea that it's being sort of asphyxiated and held up by people like us is simply not true. Hmm. It's about people who want to guarantee jobs themselves forever. And it's not because they have culturally left-wing values. By the way, many of them don't. Many of them just believe in them being in charge. Hmm. But I think the people who are making the argument for breaking or having new new channels of democratic representation, those people you point to, I think there's just as many people who probably resisted calls to reform the labor movement, probably resisted calls to break up politics. And what I talk about in the book is this notion of an exclusion bias within our politics. Just look at the policies. Look at what new Labour MPs did on welfare. Look at what Conservative MPs have done on issues around gender identity and so on. There is a consistent exclusion bias against the values and the voice of a large number of people who do not belong to the new elite, who do not share its values. That's not only here. It's also in you know the US. Nicholas Carnes has pointed to the same thing, the way in which the, the profile of, of people in, in American politics politics has radically changed. And as a consequence, the policy process has been skewed around their interests, um, the university class. I mean, look at just how um, how little investment and funding went into vocational colleges and non-graduate training over the last 40 years because the new elite weren't interested in it, didn't see it as a priority. What they saw as a priority was the agenda that we saw under New Labour and then the agenda we saw under David Cameron. This is something in the book which I, I see repeatedly, and I think maybe it's a, it's a big category error, which is on the one hand, you're saying all these things are happening because of the new elite. 
And the, yeah, and the other, you talk about globalization. And I wonder who's in charge here, a process or a class? And obviously, that's, that's always a big historic question for academics everywhere. But the, the new elite didn't make a decision to deindustrialize the UK. There was a change in the global political economy, which meant you could outsource manufacturing jobs, you could have cheap consumer durables, and you would no longer have to worry about organized labor on your doorstep, which is overseen in this country by Margaret Thatcher, and then later on, Tony, Tony Blair didn't care less. But they didn't drive that. But that's my point. They didn't, that, do, they didn't do much to reverse it. They didn't do much it. about it, didn't no. do much to stop it. And if anything, take Blair as the example of this, and I talk about this in the book. I mean, I don't actually think we disagree that much on this point. New Labour, with the exception of maybe doing some extra stuff for pensioners and families who are sliding into poverty, didn't really do anything to roll back hyper-globalisation. Rates of inequality arguably increased during the 2000s to some of the highest levels that we'd seen at that point. Um, the city, the financial services, the whole reshaping of the economy around London and the Southeast commuter belt, Labour really didn't do all that much to, to, to change that. Totally. And I was, I was working on totally. regional policy at the time. There wasn't really <clears throat> much in the way of a serious, what we now call a levelling up strategy. So I don't actually think we disagree that much. Where I get frustrated well, no, what we, what with- we, What we disagree on is that you say there's a new elite, which is metropolitan, they have progressive values. It's the kind of people that, you know, watch Navarra Media, they're the first people to criticise that stuff, Matthew. That's what I don't understand. Where I think we significantly disagree is you're talking about loads of empirical data, loads of things that have happened in the past. Yep, we can observe them. We can say they've happened. I would say they've been driven by a political class, which is, yes, economically liberal, socially liberal. Well, we can debate that a little bit more. But the idea that they're somehow left wing or that they're somehow driven fundamentally and they're composed fundamentally of people who just happen to have gone to university. I mean, I wrote this down. Look. You know, and I, and I, I, it was something I, I thought was interesting for me as a socialist because our account of the elite is billionaires, people who own the media, people with large property portfolios, CEOs. And in this book, your account includes within that elite a midwife living in their overdraft or a Starbucks barista who happens to study at a Russell Group University. I which don't is, think I mentioned those. People. Which is unhelpful. No, because you say repeatedly that the thing that fundamentally composes this new elite, which is you know, 25, 30% mm. of the country, is having gone to university. Not just having gone to university. That's I the also, primary thing I you also, say in terms of their identity. Well, let's be clear that. about how I define the group. Yeah. They also tend to come from privileged families in the managerial and professional class. They tend to have gone not just to university, but to an elite Oxbridge Russell Group University, they tend to have financial security and they tend to lean left on issues around culture. And I think a lot of people on the left have looked at this and said, well, I'm renting or I'm struggling to get by on a certain thing. Therefore, this new elite concept doesn't exist. And I you know, think that's painfully not true. I think there are lots of people out there that would meet the definition that I'm talking about. What was also true, though, which is an important point, is that there are lots of people today who will... Um, consciously move into low-paid, high-influence positions within society. And I think that's also something that, you know, needs to be thought about and considered alongside the group that I'm talking about. So when I point to, you know, think tankers, uh, uh, journalists, uh, civil society leaders, um, to some extent academics, at least early on in their, in their career, um, these are people typically leaning left on cultural questions who have gone into positions that do wield considerable social and cultural influence, but often aren't the most high paid positions. And that's probably where you and I will depart from one another, because I still think those people wield considerable influence over the national conversation in terms of how we teach, in terms of how we define knowledge, in terms of how we set social norms, in terms of how we, we basically navigate the national conversation. Uh, conservatives typically will, will not go into those occupations, right? They'll go into the, they'll go into, you know, 
They'll make money. They'll, they'll, they'll try and make they money. Got, yeah, absolutely. But this, is, but this is partly the problem of contemporary conservatism, which is right? Where power is. Which is, well, it's where one form of power is, economic power, but there are other forms of power. So if I'm a sort of a graduate charity worker in London on £25,000 a year and I'm in my overdraft and I can't afford to pay my rent, do I say to my landlord, oh, don't worry, I can't pay my rent, but I've read Bourdieu. Well, you're probably, I, I, well, I've you're, read the complete works you're, of Shakespeare. You're, 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 you're not in the new elite. I mean, I, that person in my mind, if they were in the new elite, would be from a family in the managerial professional classes, would be doing better financially, would be leaning left culturally, probably would be able to draw on considerable... That's like a, the elite is people who are doing well and the people who are doing well are the elite. That, and that, that, isn't a, that isn't a massive insight, surely. No, Whereas I'm, what you're saying is the old elite had economic power, the new elite has political, social, and cultural power, and it fundamentally comes out of the university education. I'll quote you on this. The new elite are now so dominant in the world of politics that some scholars warn we have left the era of mass democracy, which characterized the 20th century, and instead a new dark age of diploma democracy yeah. in which the system has been rewired to service the graduate class. Mm. You talk about the new elite and the graduate class mm. interchangeably. Mm. So that, that example I just gave to you, actually, I think really completely underscores what I'm trying to say here, which is at the very moment we have runaway inequality, we have the 1% taking more and more wealth. Isn't it convenient for the powers that be that we have also a new definition of the elite, which includes somebody on £25,000 a year who happens to work at the National Gallery? It's not, it's not either or. Throughout, As you know, throughout history, there's always been inter-elite competition, different groups of elites competing for power. So it's a different kind of elite? As, well, as, I said, as I said at the beginning, the axis of power is tilting away from one elite to another. And what we're seeing today is many members of that old elite having to respond to the growing power of this new group. And I think that's one of the more interesting tensions that's unfolding around us. And I point to a lot of developments, media, universities, elsewhere, where you can see this very clearly. Publishing would be another example Creative Industries would be another published. example. You're the Penguin. That's now, a big publisher. Now, now, let me tell you, that's a story in its own. That's a story in its own its own right. I mean, we have this conversation on a regular basis in publishing that you know, 71% of people in publishing are uh, very, very, very um, privileged graduates. Uh, the publishing industry is going through a moment at the moment. Uh, sorry, it's going through a moment where it's reflecting on whether it's adequately giving voice to lots of people in the country. Why is it that Hannah Barnes's book on Tavistock, Nigel Bigger's book on colonialism, and thankfully now my book as well, why is it that they've connected somehow? Because I think many people are starved of counter-cultural texts. They're starved of books and commentary that is challenging the, the, the new elite in this revolution. And you see it in the columnists, the newspaper columnists, partly, some of them, not all of them. You see it in, in all of the things that we've been talking about today, the universities and others. I can tell you, I get a lot of students that will come up to me in the last year of university and say they often feel like they've not been sufficiently exposed to the full breadth of, of intellectual diversity. Uh, but but my, my point is, you know, you look at the Hannah Barneses, you look at the Nigel Biggers, you look at the Jordan Petersons, like we can name them because Jordan, because they are partly so rare. Jordan Peterson, oh, come on. In breaking in breaking the mold of publishing. Yeah. Do you, do you know how much do you know how how many difficult how how difficult it was for some of those people to publish those books. Hannah Barnes went to 22 publishers. Now you're trying to tell me we don't have a problem with so publishing. Tim, so Nigel Bigger's book was canceled so Tim and then he had to go to somebody else. So when you, when you were discrediting the consensus writing for the Sun newspaper, were people attacking you then? I mean, you're writing, a, you're writing pieces, which you're welcome to do. You want to publicize what you're writing as widely as possible. But it's a bit of a stretch, Matthew, to say, 
I'm taking on the new elite while I'm writing for this newspaper. I didn't say I'm taking by, on. I said by a billionaire who's clearly without doubt over the last forty years the most powerful man in British politics. Oh, Rupert Murdoch. Right? Yes. Yeah. Do you not think there's a bit of a contradiction there? I've written for the Guardian. I've written for I know you the have Sunday no, Times. I've months. written for, and I'm here doing the show. I just engage with all media. What I'm saying is, when you challenge the new elite, when you challenge the new power, whatever you know, we might disagree on that. Their standard response is to stigmatize, shame, and discredit people who challenge their power. That is what the response to Brexit was about. That is what the response, I would argue, to the working class has been for the last 10 years, if not longer, which is these people are morally inferior, ignorant, racist, and bigots. And that is why I talk about the rise of this new status hierarchy in British society. And, and this thing is deeply problematic. The, the old elite, and you know, we talk about old elite, new elite, what's the difference? The old elite typically used to show their status by um, flashing their inherited titles, their estates, their money, their leisure time. The new elite primarily display their status through their commitment, their allegiance to radical progressivism, to wokeism, to displaying a loyalty to the new new religion, right? And that's that is what Do I would really argue. You really believe this? Though? That I believe. Well, I believe radical progressivism is becoming a new religion for the new elite. Yeah. So you talk uh, in the book about sort of white privilege and how mm. sort of the new elite social liberals care about it more. Do you think institutional well, radical racism, progressives care about it? Yeah. Do you think institutional racism exists? I'm going to list some statistics here. Yeah. Black Caribbean households hold 20p for every one pound of white British wealth. People from black African backgrounds typically hold the least wealth, less than one-eighth of the wealth held by white British people. And I think when it comes to home ownership, for instance, I think people of African heritage run about 20% mm -hmm. home ownership, whereas obviously the national average is in the, the mid-60s. Mm. Since 2016, white defendants have had a consistently lower average custodial sentence length mm. than other ethnic groups. Black children are 11 times more likely to be strip searched in England and Wales than their white peers. Mm. What explains all of this, if mm. not institutional racism? Mm. I do think institutional racism exists. I don't think Britain is an institutionally racist country. I think if you look at a whole host of areas in our national life, um, health, the economy, education, social mobility, the story today is incredibly varied and mixed. I've just actually finished crunching social mobility numbers for the Social Mobility Commission. And if you look at how different minority groups are progressing in British society, they are now often and pretty consistently outperforming their white British counterparts and especially their white working class counterparts. East Asians. Not only increasing- East, It's East and South Asians, but not, when we're talking about sorry, whites hang on, versus hang black on, This is an important point Please, because sometimes, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's an important point. Um, not only um, British Chinese, British Indian, British Black African, increasingly British Black Caribbean, um, increasingly British Black- um, uh, sorry, British Bangladeshi. Uh, if you look at the education system, at almost every level of the education system now, children from minority ethnic backgrounds are doing better than their white counterparts. That doesn't strike me as an institutionally racist system. When you if, say better, you mean they're more likely to go to university? No, they're more likely to do better at school. They're more likely to progress, to do better uh, uh, when they're in primary school, GCSE, A-level. Yes, more likely to go to university. Increasingly becoming as likely, if not more likely, to get into some of the better universities. They're also uh, uh, on, on uh, issues around um, health, many areas of health. They're doing better than um, uh, white, white, Brita white Britain. So I don't look at this debate in a monocausal way. And one of the problems that we have as a country, which the Tony Sewell report illustrated neatly, is we are completely unable to talk about 
these disparities between groups in a way that ventures beyond saying, well, this is just racism. Because it is far more complicated than that. There, well, we, I mean, you know, there are there are multiple factors. Black from, children are eleven from, times more likely to be strip searched in England Wales than white. I mean, that does seem to me indisputably it has to be racist. That eleven that, times more that, likely. That that but you can't look at that stat and say well the country's institutionally racist as a consequence of that. Well, I think what it's you could say, yeah, what you could say is there is a fundamental problem with policing in those communities, in those areas. But I don't think you can look at those stats and say Britain is institutionally racist, especially when you look, for example, at how British Black African kids or British Black Caribbean kids are doing so much better and often better than their white counterparts within the system. I'm not denying that there are organisations that need reform. What I'm saying is we have to get past this very. I would argue, immature discussion in how we talk about group disparities. The social mobility story in this country is remarkably positive. It is remarkably positive, not for everybody, not for women, for example, from some minority communities. We might not want to go there and discuss that, but that's a real issue that needs to be discussed. Um, Bangladeshi women, Pakistani women lagging behind their counterparts from other minority groups. I'd love to have a conversation about why that's happening. But this idea that it's all just about institutional racism, I'm afraid, is far too simplistic. Well, hold on. We're not saying it's all about institutional racism. Well, that I'm is asking, te- that's what I've been that's uh, what I've been hearing in our asked, national conversation. We're asking is do you think institutional at, racism just exists? While, just while we're having yes, it exists, but I don't think Britain is an institutionally racist country. And I'll give you one just example which really Please. gets me you know, Tony Sewell, that report was interesting, nuanced, and evidence-led with many of my fellow academics and professors did really interesting work on it. Tony Stool was then completely cancelled in the public debate and also had an honorary doctorate at my old University of Nottingham taken away because he expressed challenging political views. And you say to me, Matt, I don't think this new elite exists. I don't think it wields any power. Oh, no, I think there's a liberal and elite. Meanwhile, there is. meanwhile that, university, that university workers. set up two campuses in Nottingham to take money from the Chinese regime. Meanwhile, berating Tony Sewell for daring to challenge the radically progressive viewpoints that they tend to support. So that to me is an example of how this conversation is utterly ridiculous, this conversation about um, institutional racism in Britain. Yes, racism exists in British society. Of course it does. But when we're explaining group disparities, the picture is far more complicated than our popular debate would have us believe. If you've got somebody who, if you've got white Britons and you've got people of African heritage and people of African heritage have far lower rates of home ownership. Um, We know, like I said, that they're they're just going to be on, they're earning less money. Mm. Uh, they're far more likely to be harassed by the police. And then you say, well, they're also more likely to go to university. It just strikes me as, well, you know, I, I know plenty of white kids from where I come in, from in Bournemouth. Plenty of white kids never went to university. Absolutely. And they earn far more money than most of my graduate friends. Some of them do, some of them don't. Well, a lot of them, well, a lot of them went into trades, which don't require don't require a degree. So plumbing, electrician, boiler fitter, plasterer, and they make great money. And if you said, why didn't you go to university? Poor you, you should have gone to university. You're missing out. They said, what the hell are you talking about? Absolutely. But we're not allowed to talk about why, for example, kids from the white working class are being completely screwed over in the system. We're not allowed why to really discuss that. Why are they being screwed them. over? They're earning more money and they're more likely to own a They home. don't always earn more money, Aaron. No, not, many of them of those, do. The metric some, is about university Some of them do. Some of them do. But they are consistently the least... Um, the, the worst performers in our education system. They are the most likely to suffer family breakdown, more or less. I mean, I think there are a couple of couple of comparison points, particularly with young um, British Black Caribbean kids, but they are typically as likely to, or close to being as likely to suffer family breakdown. And if you look at, say, how the elite universities respond to that group, you know, Neon, Think Tank has found universities 
have devoted much more attention to recruiting kids from minority ethnic backgrounds than white working class kids. Cambridge just had a program that wasn't even open to white working class kids, but was open to their counterparts from other communities. And this is what I mean by, you know, the values and the belief system, the radically progressive belief system of the new elite in, in, imposing it's not itself on institutions. Because they've got no class well, no, politics. No, it's not progressive. No, exactly. But that's what I'm saying. It's not progressive. It's the opposite of that. And then when I point out, when I point out these um, contradictions and, and, and discrepancies, people say, well, you're racist for saying that. And that's the, that's the level of our public debate which is utterly ridiculous. So sticking to this issue of racism, you um, spoke to Podcast Trigonometry. We're going to play the clip now. Zoomer students or Gen Alpha or whoever's coming next, I suspect there will be a generation that comes along and thinks, this is just really naff. You know, yeah. It's going to be cool to kind of call some of this stuff out. And also I think the evidence is going to undermine it. You know, We are on the cusp of developments with genetic coding um, and science that are going to be complete game changers in how we understand health, medicine, life expectancy, all of that stuff. So the idea that there are not um, inherent differences between groups is just going to be completely unsustainable. I mean, it already is, mm -hmm. if you look at the evidence, but over the next five to 10 years, it's just going to look utterly ridiculous as a lot of this research and evidence comes through. You say there that um, genetics will reveal more about inherent differences between groups in the future and thus make young people more right-wing and bolster quasi-conservative arguments. That's not quite what I said. Hold on. What inherent differences are you talking about in that video and in between which groups? What I'm saying is that the claims of radical progressivism over the long term are simply going to be unsustainable because the dominant narrative is to trace pretty much every disparity between groups and society to racism. And what I'm saying is if you look at areas of our national life, like health, you can clearly see many different outcomes, rates of prostate cancer, uh, coronary disease, uh, life expectancy, which have absolutely nothing to do with racism and are clearly influenced by genetic factors, among other things, poverty and whatever as well. But the idea that we can just look at all of these group disparities in society and say, that's racism, as we hold did, on. hang on, as we did partly during the COVID pandemic, of course, everyone said, well, this is just racism, is for the birds. It's far too simplistic. But if you're saying that I think conservative arguments... I never, I think there was a view that what I was saying is somehow well, genetics will make people more conservative, people which, watch, was, yeah. which was utterly We've played wrong. the clip. And it was wrong, and it was it was. It, what you say is what well, you could. Okay, well, we, we can. I know what I said yeah. because I was a person saying it was. It, it will, and it was. It then turned into, which is exactly what I argue in the book. It turned into a cheap hit job. Let's talk about the clip. No, because this is. I my, don't want to talk about the reception. I want to talk about the clip because you're here. I want to talk about the reaction to it because it. Un, and then I'll come back to the clip. It underlines a point I make in the book, which is it became a cheap hit job trying to discredit a voice that people find challenging. I didn't say anything in that clip beyond the fact that if you want to explain different health outcomes among groups, you cannot ignore a variety of factors of which genetic factors what, are going what, to be one. What, what, That's, that is a common sense argument. What, if anybody wants to dispute that, I'm yeah. afraid they are not reading. What they you, are not engaging in research. What you seem to say to me was that right now, progressive arguments around fundamental um, equality and sameness between races will be undermined over time as we learn more about the genetic diversity and disparity between various different racial groups. Now, I think most people, I think rightly, by the way, Matthew, read that as you saying, well, actually, we'll find out quite soon that 
genetics are going to account for things like intelligence. And at that point, we get we do go to race science. I never, I never mentioned I that at all. Say, but, but if you look, for example, at why most of my family are in the NHS, most of my family, most 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 people. How I is know. that relevant to politics? If 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 an East Asian is lactose intolerant because of a genetic trait, which is true, it's right, it's true, it's a racially inherited genetic trait, um, or it's congruent with how we racialize mm. East Asian people. How is that relevant to politics? What traits are relevant as to I've politics? Just, in, in a in a in a politics where we look now routinely at different outcomes among different groups and we say that's because of institutional racism as indeed we've just discussed i'm saying in areas of our of our lives like like health that's clearly ridiculous there are a whole host of factors that are influencing education poverty education i'm asking family you so, breakdown. so you think that there could be genetic differences between races which would account for differences in educational attainment. I've not mentioned education at all. What I'm saying is if you look at differences in rates of I don't know, prostate cancer, coronary disease, diabetes. That's, that's not politically relevant could, though, is it? That's not why people get angry. They go, and uh, um, as Matthew Goodwin thinks that people of course, who are white because, and black have because people, of prostate because people looked at a clip that was taken out of context within a discussion that was about the problems of radical progressivism and the narratives that it produces and that it promotes. And they saw what they wanted to see. And this is, you know, this is what I would say to the left on Twitter, right? You know, get real, basically. Get real. Because if you look at a lot of the evidence that we have on disparities among different groups, this narrative, which I would argue permeates many of our institutions, that this is monocausal, this is about racism and that's it, it it's not going to last the next few decades. The evidence is going to become overwhelming that other factors from poverty to family breakdown to regional inequality in areas of health relating to um you know what we learn about who we are and 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 how we're you know structured all of that i think is going to become much more pressing the idea that group disparities are simply because of racism that's what i took issue no no, so for instance i do you have a 23 and me account you know, 23 uh, me. I have no, ancestry no. reports. And right. Okay. Okay. Right. I do. Okay. And um, what was fascinating for me was my maternal hablo group. I didn't even know that word existed. <laughs> um, is R than V. So my ancestors went right. from East Africa to West Asia. And right. then, this is on my mother's side. Right. And then to Southeastern Europe. Um, and for me, this emphasis actually on genetics that you're talking about, and as we learn how to read into the data, which in, informs our very, our very being, Actually, that undermines the idea of racial differences because I have ancestors going back thousands and thousands of generations who come from East Africa, West mm. Asia, and then go into Europe. And actually, that to me underscores a fundamental similarity with people who don't necessarily today look like me, white, brown, or black. So I would say actually the complete opposite conclusion can be mm. born out of that. I mean, I'm not turning this into a conversation around racial differences because as I argue in the book in the final chapter... If you want to look at disparities between different groups in the UK today, you cannot simply look at those through the prism of racism. There are a whole host of other factors. Also, I don't know, multiple social which factors. Is why, which is exactly what I was saying in that interview, which is if you look at an area like health, it is going to be unsustainable, as we discussed during the COVID pandemic, as we discuss often in terms of how people are treated in the NHS and so on, to look at all of these different outcomes and say, well, that's because of your fixed group identity. It's going to become unsustainable. So you don't think that educational attainment is going to be contingent on genetics then? You don't think I, that? I'm not, I've not mentioned education. You don't think that. I've not mentioned education at all. You don't think that? 
I've not mentioned education at all. <laughs> you, 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 said you, don't, you don't think No, that. because you're trying to turn this into a conversation no, about educational attainment That's how people read it, so I'm asking. Well, if they've read it, then they weren't listening to what I was saying because I never mentioned education at all. What I was mentioning was health. This conversation around the book, which is about political divides, is a conversation that essentially I think is grounded, and people can read it themselves and they can decide, but I think it's grounded in evidence, in research, and in the chapter, the final chapter on why some groups are doing better than others and why it's not enough just to say we're an institutionally racist society. I'll let that chapter be the judge and people can decide if they buy it, if they find it convincing. But the stuff that was said in response to that clip was inaccurate, was wrong, and was quite insulting. And I'll leave it there. So final question here. You're viewed as a conservative academic. Which is, okay. That's you're a small C conservative academic. You, no, know, I, I would, yeah, you covered I mean, UKIP and the rise of Farage and Brexit. But that doesn't make me a conservative academic. No. But yeah, I understand why people but would say that. You're subject material, sure, right? Sure, sure. Do, do you think there are people who are sort of fellow travellers who are, who are racist, who do believe that things like educational attainment are genetically inherited? I've met a lot of people over the last 20 years through my research who are racist. Yeah. But I'm talking about academics. I mean, I'm sure there, there will be, yeah, but I, I don't personally know them. But I've done work on extremist groups for 20 years. I mean, I've met lots of Islamophobic, prejudiced, racist um, people. Um, and in the same way that on today, when I'm doing more work on the left of politics, I've met many people who I would describe as illiberal, anti-democratic, and in some cases extreme in how they view society and, and, and the world. And my frustration with moderate liberals while we're having a discussion about the new elite <laughs> is that they never call out people on their radical left flank. They never call out radical progressive. Really? Uh, Were you no, not there for Jeremy Corbyn's treatment from 2015 to 2019? No, I'm talking more about perhaps influenced more by my where I'm sat within universities and where I'm sat in terms of the wider cultural debate, that there is a gaslighting going on where people say, oh, there is no, there's no problem within liberalism. There's no problem uh, on the, on, uh, with, within that sphere of politics. And I disagree. That's why my views have changed over the last 13, 14 years in that I, I do, I've come to the conclusion that I think, um, uh, you know, moderate liberals have let a lot of people down, have let the country down in, in not calling out a lot of this stuff. And I've gone on a political journey. I think that's pretty much pretty obvious to anybody who's ever read anything that I've produced over the years. I don't think it's a secret that I've changed my views on a whole host of issues. Um, but uh, I certainly would reject some of the commentary <clears throat> that that accompanies that. You know, that would that would say, you know, I'm not committed to whatever um, modern liberal representative democracy. I think that's utterly nonsense. And the people who say that don't know me. Would you go into politics? Um, no, no I don't not. think so. I enjoy teaching and I enjoy ideas and I enjoy research and I enjoy trying to um, find out new things about the world and politics. Everyone I know in politics is miserable. But this book reads almost like a manifesto to me. If the Conservatives lose in 2024, and it's actually something, you know, when people were saying, why are you interviewing this man? I said, well, I think if the Conservatives lose in 2024, the party's soul will be up for grabs and... I think some of the ideas in the book will be centre stage in that in that debate. Yeah, intellectually, I think that's going to be a more interesting place for the Conservative Party to be because I I think conservatism has completely 
um, been hollowed out. I don't think it knows what it is anymore. And I think if you compare and contrast British conservatives to their counterparts in other parts of the world, they look intellectually weak. They look, um, they're behind everybody else. They don't have any interesting ideas. Um, and I think the conservatives will have to push themselves into a very different intellectual space. And by the way, while we're having this conversation, because I think it's important, I'm often criticized for working or doing work with conservative think tanks. Um, I've worked with lots of left-wing think tanks over the years, but in the aftermath of Brexit, it became very apparent to me that there was or there was a need for conservatism to respond to the things that led to Brexit, and those ideas would inevitably have to come from the conservatives, whether it's around levelling up, whether it's around a new migration policy, whether it's around a new relationship with the European Union, or where the country's going in the future. So when I started to do work with some of those think tanks, you know, I think obviously that's a point where I lost some friends on the left who kind of viewed this as being some sort of, you know, capitulation or whatever. That's fine. But I just thought intellectually, that was a much more interesting space to be in the aftermath of Brexit. Um, because ultimately, I do care about the country and I do care about the communities that were trying to express their voice by voting for Brexit and then by voting for the Conservatives in 2019. And these were imperfect vessels for many of those voters. Final question. You know lots of people on the, on the right. I asked you about academics. Do you think people mm. like Nigel Farage are racist? I think uh, I know Nigel Farage well. Uh, I think deep down my view is he is not racist. I think he's ventured into xenophobia, but I don't think he is racist uh, would be my view. And the poster where it had people coming... Ultra and twenty the UK. How did you feel about that? Well, on a personal level, unsavory. I didn't particularly think it was a uh, the right thing to do. Politically, I understood the logic behind it. I've met to clarify and put this in context. I mean, I've you know I've been in interviews with um, people on the far right. I've met a lot of people with very very unsavory extremist. Uh, views over the years, um, and I've got to know them. I mean, I my PhD was interviewing hardcore neo-Nazis, neo-fascists who were anti-Semitic, conspiratorial, anti-democratic, were fascists. Um, so the difference in my mind between people I met in, say, UKIP versus people who I met in the National Front, um, there was a big difference between them. Uh, that's my experience uh, of being in in their homes and community centers and so on. I don't personally think UKIP was an extreme uh, racist organization. I think the National Front was, and I think some organizations that followed it certainly were, but I don't think UKIP were. Matthew Goodwin, thanks for joining us here on Downstream. Thank you.